Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit, and it's a new episode. It's September 26th. And over the past week, I spent some time actually listening to other podcasts. Not a lot of time. A few minutes. Why a few minutes? Mainly because they're unlistenable. I don't know if you listen to any other podcast, but this one, I don't. In fact, I don't even listen to this podcast. I do it, and then I don't listen to it again because I don't want to hear myself speak again. I've heard it the first time. Why do I need to hear it the second time? But podcasts are horrific. They're boring. You can tell, at least in the true crime area, that the people that are doing the podcast usually don't have much firsthand knowledge of what they're talking about. And if they do, they're reading off of a script. I mean, you can hear it. You can hear them reading as opposed to emoting naturally. So I guess the point of me telling you all this is that this is really, mine, is really a great podcast. That's why I keep doing it. One is because I like to get down all of my memories, as many as I can, permanently, because over the years, you tend to forget them. You always want to put down notes of things that are happening that are interesting in your life, but you very rarely get that opportunity to do so in a contemporaneous manner. And this is really, you know, a great podcast. It is. I mean, it is. As it comes out of my mouth, sometimes it's very interesting. And I know that it's interesting. And I'm giving you stories that you're not going to hear anyplace else. Now, granted, this part of this week's podcast for the last minute and a half is not particularly good or very interesting. But that's going to change, at least somewhat. Now, there are some topics I want to talk about in the news. And then I started to research an old case of mine that popped out of uh, the blue into my head because as I was going through some old notes, I remembered something that many, many, many years ago, there was a period of time for about a year or two that I took very careful notes of things that were going on in cases because I remember thinking, this kind of stuff is just, its no one's ever going to believe it and I'm never going to remember it. Well, I took contemporaneous day-to-day -day notes of a bunch of cases as they were going on, and then I just forgot about them. Well, I found them this weekend as I was putting together some notes on one of my cases from 1995, 1996. I was 29 and 30 at the time. And when I read the notes, it was jaw-dropping to me. The, the, the memories came flooding back. Sometimes memories are gone. They're just out of your mind forever. But if you can get the slightest bit of hint of a whiff of a memory, it all comes back to you. And you never would have remembered it if not for that little push, that little nudge. And that's what happened this weekend when I found notes about a, a criminal case, an extraordinary case that it's stunning to me that it's been lost to history because it's that shocking of a case. I was only involved in a, in a small part of it, but I was there for the end of it, the very end. And I want to talk about at least the beginnings of it this time. I couldn't go into very much of it because it's just too long um, and it's too incredible of a story to really be able to do with the end of talking about issues that are going on this week in the news. And I like to obviously do both if I can. But the case that I'm going to talk about next week in full is the case of Howie Krantz and Michael Burnett, also known as Michael Raymond. I'm going to get into that in a bit, but it might be the most extraordinary case that I've ever been involved in, ever was so lucky to be involved in. 
And when I think back to that time period of my life, I was a kid. I hadn't even tried a case yet. I was a lawyer for five years, I suppose. And I remembered the feeling of euphoria that I had every day to go to work because the cases we were working on, they all went to trial back then, it seemed. I mean, many of them did. Now things have changed. It's much harder to go to trial. I've got a bunch set for the beginning of the year, but it doesn't happen very often anymore. Back then, we went to trial a lot more, and the cases were just extraordinary. So I'm going to get into that in a bit, but I wanted to talk about some topics in the news this week, if I could. And, you know, I I try to be objective when I discuss political issues, because you you don't want to listen to just some partisan jerk just giving the party line. It's it's bad enough, and I and I consider myself a centrist to some large measure. I can't stand listening to the far left. They're so brainwashed, and I can't stand listening to the far right. No matter what you tell them, they're just, you're wrong. It, it has to be their way, no matter how obviously wrong it is. And I, I find it unbearable. So I try to look at these things objectively. And you've listened, you've heard. I'm not a, a fan of, of Donald Trump. I think he's an imbecile. I'm not a never Trumper. I'm not somebody that is hates Trump so much that I would become a Democrat. I'm past that. I was a Democrat for many, many years. I was a liberal and I still am a social liberal. I'm pro choice. I'm for gay marriage. I'm for some gun control. I'm, I was against uh, Roe v. Wade being. Uh, uh, reversed by the Supreme Court. So I, I think I have enough uh, moderate bona fides that I can talk about these things honestly, and I can be taken seriously. Now, I say this, I do a, um, a Monday morning hit on a radio show in New York every Monday at 7.05 on WOR, and one of the hosts, blessed his heart, he's a, he's, he's a nice man, he's an older man, and a, a well-known sportscaster for a local television in New York for decades. I grew up watching him. It's Len Berman and, and Warner Wolf was another guy that I watched constantly. And I was lucky enough to work with Warner uh, at WABC years ago. And, you know, sometimes when you meet a guy that you saw on TV, a guy that you looked up to, you meet him in real life and he's a complete uh, disappointment. Warner was never that way. Warner is the most incredible, decent, funniest, most wonderful guy. Um, and I say that, and I mean that, and anybody who's ever dealt with Warner Wolf knows that, knows that he's that good of a man, that kind and generous uh, of a man. And Len Berman is who I do the uh, WOR hit with, uh, him and Michael Riedel on their show on WOR. And, and, and Len, we disagree completely on politics, but I consider him to be a zombie for the left. No matter how obvious uh, the facts are, he just can't admit that his side is ever wrong. And I find that to be troubling. Um, I can agree with Len on 97% of everything that's going on in the world. We talk about politics. We don't agree at all. So I try because I feel that when I argue with him, no matter how obvious it is that he's wrong, I find that it's, it's frustrating. I would think as a listener to listen to this and say, my God, you know, the guy can't see it both ways. So I try to see things both ways. And this very long um, intro, and I'm, I'm hoping that you're still listening. One of the things that happened this past week was Stacey Abrams. Now, you know who she is. Uh, she opened up her big mouth and, and just really lied so badly this week. 
And and she's one of the leading voices in the Democratic Party today. And she's currently running for governor of Georgia after having narrowly lost um, in 2018 to Brian Kemp. I think she lost by about 50,000 votes. And she maintains today that the race was stolen from her, that there was voter suppression. And she still has not conceded that election four years later. She still won't admit that she lost. And I would say to you, to the liberals that are listening, and there are certainly some of you, I know, doesn't that sound familiar? That somebody won't admit that they lost an election? Doesn't that sound annoyingly familiar? Well, you see, it's on both sides of the aisle. It's not just uh, Trump. It's Stacey Abrams as well. And this is not an insignificant person in the Democratic Party. But anyway, last week, she actually stated in public that fetal heartbeats that are heard around six weeks from ultrasounds are not heartbeats at all. And her exact quote was, there is no such thing as a heartbeat at six weeks. And she means of pregnancy, of gestation. And if you do a 10-second Google search on fetal heartbeats, you'll find accepted science, including from such esteemed hospitals like the Cleveland Clinic, which made clear that at about six weeks, a heartbeat can usually be detected in the fetus. And anyone who's ever had a child knows from that visit to the doctor at around six, seven weeks, you can see your baby's heartbeat in an ultrasound. You can hear it and you can see it. So... My initial thought was, my God, why is she lying about something that is so, it's, it's just such an accepted scientific fact. Well, she was speaking in opposition to Georgia, that's where she's from, legislation which would prevent abortions if a fetal heartbeat can be detected. So naturally, if you're a far lefty and you are for abortion, and you want abortion to be legal, well, you want that heartbeat to not begin until, I don't know, age five? You know, you want it to be as late as possible because if abortion won't be allowed once the heartbeat st starts, then you want to delay the heartbeat to allow for uh, abortion for as long as possible. And that's disappointing, again, because it, it's – I understand that abortion is so important to Democrats. Listen, it's important pro-choice, as I said, I am to me as well. If If they're willing to lie, though, about accepted medical science – that's not a good sign, and that it's really bad. And you have to understand why it's bad, because if we can't trust each other to tell even the most basic truths, my God, we're just finished as a country. Now, immediately after she made this public lie, the far left, of course, fell in line with her, and Planned Parenthood changed its website without any notice to say that at five to six weeks of pregnancy, a part of the embryo starts to show cardiac activity it sounds like a heartbeat on an ultrasound, but it's not a fully formed heart. It's the earliest stage of the heart developing. Now, their website used to say that at five to six weeks of pregnancy, a very basic beating heart and circulatory system develops in the fetus. But naturally, Planned Parenthood, which provides the most abortions, I think of any abortions probably on the planet, is a political organization, shouldn't be, should not be, but it is. And facts don't matter, just politics. Facts are worthy collateral damage when it comes to this important issue of abortion for Democrats. But here's the thing. 
let's say that there isn't a bright line time when the fetal heartbeat can be detected. And I don't know that there really is. I mean, they're saying it's roughly six weeks, but I've done some research online. I looked. Uh, I'm okay that it's not a bright line number. And as I said, I'm pro-choice. A million times I've said that. Five weeks where you can hear the heartbeat, six weeks, eight weeks, whatever it is. The fetus does have a heartbeat pretty early on after conception. That's not the part of what Stacey Abrams said that is so completely idiotic, so insane, so completely crazy that she has to be deemed unfit to serve as governor of Georgia or like even like mayor of like Simpleton or Crazy Town. She's just too nutty. And her full comment was, quote, there is no such thing as a heartbeat at six weeks. It is manufactured sound designed to convince people that men have the right to take control of a woman's body. I'm going to say that again because it's so fucking crazy. There is no such thing as a heartbeat at six weeks. It is a manufactured sound designed to convince people that men have the right to take control of a woman's body. What is she suggesting? That the ultrasound is a fraud? That it's not real? That the sound is manufactured? That it's not a real sound? That women who have ultrasounds have had them for decades and heard their baby's heartbeats were actually the victims of a fraud? That's a fraud designed so that men can control their bodies? I mean, this is like the worst QAnon lunacy. You know, the left makes fun of the far right uh, with that QAnon garbage, which is Alex Jones stuff and that Nick Fuentes and all that with those crazy QAnon conspiracies. Well, guess what? Stacey Abrams just said something equally, if not more crazy. Listen to me. No one wants to control your body. No man does, at least, Stacey Abrams, I assure you. No man on the planet wants to control your body. But what part of this was so completely ignored, everybody just approached, excuse me, in the media, everybody just approached this at, well, you know, Stacey may be talking science. She's just saying something that isn't exact bright line timing in terms of when the fetal heartbeat can be heard. But no, they ignored the rest of it. What they said in their headlines, and I'm looking at MSNBC right now online, Fox News is attacking Stacey Abrams for speaking the truth. They conveniently left out the part about the ultrasound being a fraud. The ultrasound was invented by a doctor in, in Scotland in the 50s. Apparently, Dr. Ian Donald wanted control over Stacey Abrams' body when he discovered the ultrasound in the 50s. Now, Abrams was a member of the Georgia House of Representatives for 10 years before running and losing the governor's race in 2018. Since then, she's been a voting rights activist, and her efforts have been widely credited with voter turnout being boosted in Georgia, including the 2020 election in which Joe Biden narrowly won the state, and also the uh, following Georgia special, special U.S. Senate elections, which gave Democrats control of the Senate in late 2020. I mean, she's largely responsible for that. And also Donald Trump insinuating to his voters, they should stay home as a protest to him losing the election and getting robbed. So he said, so that's why the Democrats have controlled the Senate and Stacey Abrams gets a lot of that credit or is at least given a lot of that credit. Now, 
but she does have a, a habit of doing and saying really dumb things. When she ran in 2018, she admitted that she owed more than 227000 in credit card debt and student debt and back taxes of about 54000 and, and that's the weird part to me. I don't have a problem with her having credit card debt. I mean, people have credit card debt. People have student loans. I get it. But the, the tax debt, I didn't understand. She didn't pay quarterly taxes on self-employment income in 2015 and 16 because she said, quote, life got in the way. And she decided to spend the money, which she had for taxes on other things she wanted to spend it on, which she claimed was her family's medical bills which seems a little disingenuous because I did a little reading and apparently she had no problem in 2018 donating $50,000 to her failed uh, gubernatorial campaign. Now that money would have eliminated her tax bill, but instead she gave it to her campaign. I mean, look, she used the money for TV commercials instead of paying her taxes. Me, you, we'd probably get indicted Nobody's going to fuck around with Stacey Abrams because you just can't. You don't want to be deemed racist. That's really what else could be the explanation. Now, when she was a state legislator in Georgia from 2007, 2017, she's only making about $17,000 a year. So she obviously wasn't evading taxes on that, but she had other income, including a consulting firm, and she's a published author, which is impressive. She's written about her time as the, in the Georgia State House uh, as minority leader, and she's also written Harlequin romance novels under a pseudonym. Her novels include The Art of Desire, Hidden Sins, and Secrets and Lies. Yeah, romance novels, Stacey Abrams, not the two phrases that I would necessarily think would be together, but alas, here we are. Now, despite graduating from Yale Law School, she claims that she didn't fully understand how money worked when she started college, and that led to her uh, incurring significant credit card debt. And this is what she said, quote, I did not understand that those magical slivers of plastic that I was getting in college, that a $1,000 purchase would cost me like $3,000 over the next seven years. She said, and, and that if I didn't pay the bill every month, it was going on some report that was going to follow me even after I had a great job. I guess she's referring uh, to the fact that if you don't pay your credit cards off or if you don't make the minimum payments, you get a bad black mark on your credit report. And she also didn't seem to understand that if you don't pay your credit card bills, they charge interest. It's shocking, but they actually charge interest in Stacey Abrams. The Yale law grad was unaware of that, apparently. I don't know. It seems to me that an adult that gets a law degree from Yale should probably understand these concepts of, of what a credit card actually does, this little sliver of magic. Now, despite not understanding the concept, again, of what a credit card is, she ran in 2018 on a platform of hoping to improve financial literacy for families across Georgia. Keep in mind that she still owed the taxes at this time. Quote, that's the kind of skill set you want, someone who can make choices when choices aren't easy, she said. Listen to me, that is not the kind of skill set you want. That's the kind of skill set you want to, like, you know, put in a straitjacket, perhaps. I mean, you want that? Someone who doesn't understand how a, how a credit card works? You want that to be your governor? <laughs> what? You don't understand that when you don't pay your bills that they have interest? 
that compounds on the debt? You want that? You want that as your skill set? You want somebody who can pay their bills off and doesn't commit you know, tax evasion, I would think. And she said that, that the choices aren't easy. Well, I think they are pretty easy. You don't pay your taxes, for her at least. You don't pay your taxes. You don't get indicted for tax evasion. And instead, you use the money for your failed uh, campaign. So those seem to be pretty easy choices for her. They wouldn't be so easy for me. Nevertheless, she's running for governor again in Georgia, and she recently said that Georgia is the worst state in the country to live in. That's her state, the state that she loves so much. That, was a, that wasn't uh, received well. And she's also made an ass out of herself uh, during the pandemic. She visited a school in Georgia to read to a bunch of little kids. Now, keep in mind that Abrams is all about the vaccinations and the mandates and the masking during COVID. You got to do all that stuff. Otherwise, Stacey Abrams is going to be pissed. <clears throat> so naturally, she goes to the school. And she spends a day with a bunch of kids who are like six-year-olds. And the kids are forced to wear masks all day because it's during the pandemic. And guess who wasn't wearing a mask? The one person who could actually get sick from COVID in that entire building was the older obese woman, Stacey Abrams. She's 48 years old. So these little kids that have no chance of getting sick, at least statistically, from COVID, I mean, like a one in, a, in like 50 million uh, they have to wear masks all day, all day. And Stacey Abrams, the obese older woman, doesn't at all. It, it just doesn't really make any sense. I mean, she could die from COVID due to her, uh, you know, her obesity. And again, this Yale law grad, she tweeted a photo of herself with the kids all wearing masks while she's not. She didn't think that this might be a problem. She had no idea that people might be upset. I mean, why didn't she think it would? And I'll tell you why. Because people, the, the lefty leaders like Gavin Newsom, the uh, governor of California with all the, the hair gel, and other leftist politicians, they just view masks as theater, despite their, them supporting mask mandates for the rest of us. And that picture all the adults were wearing masks too, the Stacey Abrams picture. So they have a bunch of pictures of her during the day. Everybody's wearing a mask. The teachers, the adults, the kids, the little kids, everybody but one person, Stacey Abrams. So naturally, of course, when she's called on it, she lied. And she said that she just took the mask off to take a picture. And CNN, knowing that the pictures were out on the internet, she allowed her to make, they allowed her to make that lie, even though there were pictures that showed all day with her not wearing a mask, not just one picture where uh, she's taking off a mask and then putting it back on. She didn't wear a mask the entire day. And again, these aren't staged pictures. Many were when she was speaking to the kids, she was not wearing a mask the entire day and nobody called her on it there. And she thought this was appropriate. She just felt that she was above it. I'm not sure why she feels she's above anything. She doesn't even understand how credit cards work. She evaded taxes. And she had the money, apparently, and just didn't want to pay. She wanted to give it to a campaign. Why on earth would anybody want this as your governor? Naturally, she's about six points behind in Georgia and about to lose this second election in a row. So I'm sure she won't. She didn't concede the first one yet. So I guess before she concedes the second one, she's going to have to concede the first one. But none of this should be a surprise to anyone after all, she stated publicly that the purpose of the ultrasound is to allow men to control women's bodies. And this is what passes for an up-and-coming star in the Democratic Party. 
Now, another topic that I, I have to talk about this week, and I, I talk about it a lot, it's Iran. And the reason I talk about it, it's not because I'm, I'm interested in their culture. I'm not. It's because they're a political linchpin to so many different goings on around the world. They're really interesting. Iran's actions and their place in the world is so interesting. It's also interesting how we handle them. It speaks to the effectiveness of our foreign policy or the ineffectiveness. And, and what they do has so much impact on the Middle East. You know, when they're uh, arming terrorists um, that are affecting Yemen or Saudi Arabia or Israel, or they're killing the prime minister of Lebanon and taking over that country, or they're ethnically cleansing Syria, moving weaponry to Hezbollah and Iran through Syria. All that stuff has impact all over the globe. They're trying to kill Americans in America, dissident Iranians all over the globe, including in America. It's interesting. It doesn't mean I agree with it or respect it. I don't. But it's interesting stuff. And if you care at all about foreign policy or the world around you, you're going to really follow what Iran is doing because it's really important. And last week, by the way, was UN week in New York. That's the week every year where the UN General Assembly meets in New York City and all the world's leaders descend upon Midtown Manhattan and they give speeches at the UN. And it fascinated me that we as the stewards of the UN, because it's obviously in New York, um, we allow certain world leaders to come here, no matter how many people they've killed. We treat them like they're royalty. And I, I find this to be just disgusting. And this applies to the Iranian president. He, he's not their dictator. I think he refers to himself just as the president. And their dictator is actually the Ayatollah. As we all know, he's the one, the religious figure that controls Iran. But the president uh, granted, he's a, a, a figurehead to some degree. He's a puppet for the terrorist regime. But he also uh, was certainly a very large part of the apparatus that committed so much terror, as did uh, the prior uh, presidents of Iran. They're in, they've all been involved in, in some sort of terrorism uh, that exists within Iran. That's how they get to the position of being president, because they're aligned with the religious fanatical uh, terrorist leaders. Now, this is a, a, at a very delicate time with Iran, just so you know, the UN General Assembly, at least from what we've been told. We're very close to working out their return to the 2015 nukes deal between Iran, the United States, and the European Union. And despite the dozens of ultimatums we've given them since we began engaging them, you know, you got to get it done by this date. You got to get it done by that date. It's been like a year and a half, two years. They're just ignoring. They don't care because we have no teeth. Uh, our deadlines are, are meaningless. They're, you know, farts in a wind. And we're at a standstill. And, and again, no deadline has been extended to them. We're just basically waiting on the Iranians. And what's the holdup? This is interesting. Again, you need to follow this stuff. It's, it's really interesting. For the holdup for the nukes deal, and it, it requires us to have mutual trust between the parties. I mean, their position is, well, we can't trust you because Trump unilaterally withdrew from the agreement. And I get it. Uh, they want some reason to believe the Americans going forward. And we want some reason to believe that they're not lying terrorist scumbags, which they are. That the holdup right now is that the Iranians insist that the International Atomic Energy Agency, uh, known by the acronym IAEA, that they stop their investigation into unexplained uranium traces found at three undeclared 
Iranian sites. Now, this is a critical investigation because there needs to be an assurance that Iran is not secretly diverting nuclear material, which they could use to make a weapon. You know, at the same time when we're told that they don't want a nuclear weapon. Now, uranium is used to make nuclear bombs, and traces were found at these sites. Now, these were sites which Iran spent months barring access to. They did everything they could to prevent anybody from the IAEA looking at these sites because they obviously had something to hide. So any sane person can understand why we wouldn't want to enter into a deal with Iran regarding their nuclear program without first getting them to honestly explain why they've been caught trying to secretly make a nuclear bomb in the past, which is why there's traces of uranium at previously undisclosed nuclear sites, and they refuse to explain it. So you can understand why we have some trust issues from our side. But forget the nuclear deal talks for a second. Forgetting all that, this is how insane we as stewards of the UN in New York are. Keep in mind that during the very week that Iran's president came with his giant entourage to New York City for UN week, there's massive upheaval and violent protests inside Iran in which Iranian forces are using live fire on unarmed protesters, killing dozens. And that's before the real crackdown has even started. And you're asking, dear listeners, why is uh, there such many protests in Iran? Well, I'm going to tell you. Because the terror regime's morality police, yes, they actually have morality at peace. These are police. These are men who walk around Iran and they arrest or beat women in the street if they're not dressed properly in public. They arrested a 22-year-old woman for wearing a loose-fitting hijab, and that's that covering over their heads. And... Then they beat her to death. They lied about it and claiming that she died of a heart attack. And that happens so often that a 22-year-old dies of a, a heart attack, a healthy uh, woman with no prior um, conditions. But they claimed that she had a heart attack while she was staying in a guidance center. That's a re-education center where women are taught how to follow Iran's rules on female clothing. You know, the clothing rules are that you can't just wear what you want. You have to wear what they believe Allah wanted you to wear. Now, according to Iran's laws, all women above the age of puberty must wear a head covering in public. In school, girls typically have to wear the hijab from the age of seven on. A major part of Iran's uh, social regulations is based on the state's interpretation of Islamic Sharia law. That's like the law where if you steal something, they cut your hands off. And the Sharia law requires both men and women to dress modestly. But as you can imagine in practice, the morality police primarily target women. And there are no clear guidelines or details on what type of clothing qualify as inappropriate, which obviously leaves a lot of room for interpretation. And that's sparked accusations that the uh, morality police are arbitrarily detaining women just for reasons that, that no one even knows. And when they arrested this woman, her name was Masha Amini, she was wearing what is widely considered to be conventional clothing by Iran's standards. She had a, a long, plain black dress with a black and white headscarf. But no, that wasn't enough. She was detained and brought into a van where witnesses said she was beaten. You know, because you can't wear a loose-fitting hijab in Iran and not get the shit beaten out of you. A 2018 survey showed that between 60 to 70% of Iranian women do not follow the Islamic dress code strictly when they're in public. 
So now young people all over Iran are protesting. It's understandable. It's a very young country, Iran is. Iranian authorities, of course, blocked access to the internet because they don't want the protesters to be able to communicate with each other. And they also probably don't want them to read what the rest of the world is saying about these protests that the rest of the world supports them. But again, you've got a very old religious murderous dictatorship, a small bunch of people lording their power and their abuse over a very young, more modern nation. And that's why you're having these protests. The average age of Iranians is about 30. And Iranians are clearly tired of decades of oppression by their fanatical dictatorial regime. They want freedom, and they're currently fighting for it, even though they know they're going to be killed. They don't have weapons. They're fighting in the streets against uh, terrorists with guns. And it's funny because Iran is constantly complaining about Israel going into the terrorist areas of uh, the West Bank and Palestine with air quotes around Palestine, and they're fighting armed, lunatic Iranian-paid terrorists, and when Israel kills someone who's shooting at them, Iran screams and yells how horrible it is that they're killing unarmed protesters when, in fact, they're killing armed uh, armed terrorists. But in Iran, they really are unarmed young people, and they're being slaughtered in the streets just because they're tired of being abused. Naturally, you're looking in the West for where are the liberals? Where are those liberal women who don't like the fact that the Iranians are forcing women to wear the hijabs in the street? And if it's not tight enough, it's got to be tight, 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 high and tight on their heads. They get the shit beaten out of them in a van and they get killed sometimes. The Western women, where are they? Where are all those liberals? You know, I guess they're probably in the same place that when they support the Palestinians, they look the other way when Palestinians are lynching gays. They're all for gay rights and women's rights, those lefties in America, those women, the ones dancing in their kitchens. But when it comes to actually women's rights in practice, they're not around. They're spending their husband's money and they're making their potions and their elixirs. And I know I get emails. I have an email from a a friend who asked me, "What, what is it with you and you hate these liberal women that dance in their kitchens? And I'll tell you why. I mean, it's no real secret. They're the ones that are so dumb, so uneducated, so completely out of touch. They're the ones that gave us Obama. They're the ones that gave us Joe Biden which is okay. They should be allowed to vote the way they want to, but they're not voting because they understand the issues. They're the only group that is pro-Biden right now. We talked about this on a podcast a few weeks ago. Every other group, except I think for blacks and suburban white women, everybody else knows that Biden is a complete disaster, but they don't understand it. They don't seem to understand. So yes, that's why I hate them. You asked Now I'm telling you why. And none of them are out there protesting for these women that are being slaughtered in the streets in Iran because they won't wear a head covering. Where are the women in America? I think the only one that spoke about it was uh, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Jimenez-Cortez. Did I miss a letter in there? She said something, and for that I give her credit, even though she's wrong about everything else. But for some reason, you know, Nancy Pelosi, all those other women in the squad, that bald one and the, the one with the, what's her name? Omar, the one who hates Jews. They all hate Jews. Anyway, nobody said a thing. They don't support the women in Iran at all. For some reason, they support the Iranian dictators. 
And their president, Iran's president, came to New York during all of this for UN Week. Well, he's got a nickname. He's got a nickname. I, I don't know if you're aware of this. It's the Butcher of, of Tehran. That's Iran's capital. Ebrahim Raisi was sanctioned by the U.S. government for his role in the 1988 massacre of over 8,000 innocent Iranian political prisoners and his crackdown of peaceful protesters in 2019, which resulted in the mass murder of about 1,500 more young Iranians. This president is said to have personally whipped prisoners with electric cables while ordering hundreds to be shot, thrown off cliffs, and hung publicly from cranes. Racy started his career in 1981 as the prosecutor of two provinces in Iran. He played a leading role in persecuting minorities, especially the Baha'is, and political opponents that left untold numbers dead, tortured, and jailed. He then moved to Tehran as the deputy prosecutor, and he served as member of the so-called death committees. And in 1988, as I said, was directly implicated in executing some 8,000 political prisoners who had already served non-capital sentences. This is the president of Iran who was in New York. From 2004 to 2014, he was elevated to the position of deputy chief justice in Iran. I mean, can you imagine what passes for the chief justice in Iran? During his 10-year tenure on the bench, Iran experienced, if you can believe, even more deterioration in human rights and religious freedoms. He punished political opponents and dissidents. He accepted forced confessions obtained under torture and he used them as evidence in court took a very strong position against women who defied the modesty laws, including the veiling, as I said. As the deputy chief justice, he helped to launch hostage diplomacy program, which if you follow Iran, you're aware that uh, what it's done, they want to get out their operatives who were jailed in the West. So Iran started targeting dual nationals and foreigners for possible exchange. If you're dumb enough to go to Iran as a dual citizen from, let's say, America and Iran or England and Iran, well, uh, they seize you, they torture you into making false confessions, and then they bring you before a court where they had sham trials. They give you lengthy prison sentences, and then they try to swap you with their own prisoners in Western prisons. Some 35 Westerners, among them 17 Americans, were arrested on trumped-up charges such as espionage, crimes against national security, and crimes that undermined the Islamic Republic of Iran during his tenure. And recently, we've learned that Iran tried to assassinate members of America's government, John Bolton and Mike Pompeo. All that was under Racy's uh, watch. And under his watch, they've targeted American, excuse me, Iranian dissidents who are living in America today. He's trying to kill Americans. He sent them to Brooklyn today. A few weeks ago, uh, someone was arrested trying to kill a very well-known Iranian dissident in Brooklyn. After she had her life threatened, there was a plot uncovered uh, a year ago also. This is happening, and, and we're letting this guy into our country for UN Week instead of arresting him. He should have been arrested as soon as he landed. What's Iran going to do? What are they going to do? They're going to, what, bomb us in Iraq? What are they going to do? Are they going to send their, their navy, which is, consists of about seven paper ships, they're going to send them to invade America? We should have arrested him immediately. I immediately for murder. 
immediately. He gave a speech, this uh, Iranian president, to Leslie Stoll on 60 Minutes. It aired like a week ago, in which he denied the Holocaust. Which is ironic, of course, because Iran is doing everything in its power to emulate the Nazi slaughters of six million Jews. And they do that by arming all these Muslim terror groups in the Middle East, which surround Israel. Hamas uh, in uh, the Gaza Strip, Hezbollah in Lebanon, Islamic Jihad in the Gaza Strip. And their sole purpose is to destroy the Jews in Israel. Instead of being arrested at JFK, he was met like a respected foreign dignitary. The NYPD, the U.S. Secret Service, they were all there to protect him. This is your government. This is the Democrats in charge. Under Democrats like Obama and Biden, we've given Iran a free pass for decades. Remember what they did to us in 1979, where they kidnapped our, uh, our, our workers, our diplomatic workers for 444 days at the U.S. Embassy? And while we're giving Ukraine $50 billion in aid, I think that's where we're up to right now, which is more than I think the rest of the world combined. It's more aid than we've given to any country. I mean, Israel, we give so much to. The Democrats cry about that it's, what, $4 billion a year? A year. We gave $50 billion to the Ukraine in 2022. Liberals applaud that. They applaud that. They love the Ukraine, right? Even as we're heading into a recession and the economy is in a toilet, $50 billion we've given them? And listen, that's fine. You love the Ukraine? I've got no problem. You've got to feel awful for them because Russia invaded them. They're slaughtering them. They're slaughtering innocents. You should feel bad uh, uh, for the Ukraine. You should support them. But are you aware that the Ukraine just cut off diplomatic ties with Iran? You don't know that. You're listening. You don't know that, you liberals. You should know that. Well, why? Why do they cut off diplomatic ties with Iran and kick Iran's ambassador out of the Ukraine? Well, Iran is giving kamikaze drones to Russia, which are being used to murder innocent Ukrainians. We're giving the Ukraine $50 billion in aid, but we allowed the head of the Iranian regime, which is killing innocent Ukrainians, we gave him the red carpet treatment when he arrived at JFK? Just weeks after his regime was indicted for trying to murder American leaders on our own soil. We didn't just not arrest them. We allowed him to stay at one of the most expensive hotels in New York with his ridiculously huge entourage. And there's a video that's on the internet where it's, they're all taking a huge amount of purchased items back to Iran, like home appliances. I mean, it's crazy. Trump, at least, and again, I'm not a fan of Trump, but he at least it restricted them to a six-block radius when they were in New York for UN Week. To Biden, they're treated like respected friends, even though they're trying to kill us here, trying to kill us all over the globe. The Ukrainians had it right. You're killing us on our own soil. Why are we allowing you to stay here? We're not. It's the same concept. Kick them out. Don't allow them to speak at the UN to the world and lie their asses off. And if you wonder why Russia was so emboldened to invade the Ukraine and, and Putin waited until Biden took office, you don't have to look very far. When Obama was in charge with Biden by his side, Syria's dictator Assad used chlorine attacks on his own people, chemical attacks on his own people. Obama naturally threatened to use force against Assad for the use of the chemical weapons, but he didn't. Why? Because Obama wanted to appease Russia. 
which claimed it was trying to make peace in Syria. So they said, okay, we're not going to be hard on Assad if you can just make peace in Russia. Can you imagine trusting Putin? That's how stupid Obama was. Russia's a very staunch ally of Syria. And Obama fell for the bait. And Obama felt that he needed Russia also, not just for Syria, but he thought that he needed Russia's help to induce Iran to enter into that prior, the 2015 nukes agreement. So he trusted Putin. Now, what do you think of Putin, lefties? Is that someone you can trust, or do you think he's absolutely batshit insane? He is. He's insane. Guess what? Your hero, Obama, he trusted him. He gave, he let them into Syria. And that's where they are now. He trusted Putin with a guy who was gassing his own people. Putin saw how weak the Democrats were then, clearly, by not getting tough on Assad and his use of chemical weapons. So what did Assad do when we didn't use force? Well, he just kept on using uh, chemical weapons. He killed 85 more people, many children with a, a sarin-filled rocket. And instead of punishing him, for using nerve gas on his own people. As I said, Obama took uh, Russian President Putin up on an offer to peacefully dismantle the Syrian chemical weapons program and, and craft a, a, there's a UN resolution to make sure no gas attacks ever occurred in Syria again. Obama got fooled. And you wonder why Putin had no concern about Joe Biden when he invaded the Ukraine, because he knew that Joe Biden was just another example of Barack Hussein Obama. Anyway, I'm done talking about Iran. I'm going to finish up this podcast and talk about, briefly, the case of Howie Krantz. This is a case that I, when I was working for Jerry Shargell, and I'm, I'm sorry that I'm, I'm like whipsawing you. I mean, you're listening to me. I'm getting foaming at the mouth about Iran, and now I'm talking about Howie Krantz. The case of Howie Krantz um, and Michael Burnett, that was um, his co-defendant. It was also known as Michael Raymond, which was not his given name, but a name that he ultimately changed his name to. Michael Raymond was one of the most prolific con men and, and government informants in the history of America. And this is a case that is lost to history. For decades, Michael Raymond defrauded people, he killed people, all the while acting as an undercover agent and informer, which resulted in scores of corruption indictments in New York and in Chicago in the mid-1980s. And whenever he'd get caught committing a crime, he'd work off the time as an informant. This is what uh, Michael Burnett slash Raymond, he played a crucial role in the FBI investigation of bribery in the New York City Parking Violations Bureau. That was a probe that ended, you don't remember because you're too young, it ended with the suicide of Queensboro President Donald Mattis. Happened when I was in college, I remember. And the conviction of Bronx political boss Stanley Friedman, who coincidentally was Jerry Shargell's client. I wasn't working for him then, I was in college. And I was there for the end of the line for Burnett, or Raymond, whatever you call him. And Jerry and I represented Howie Krantz, who was tried uh, along with uh, Raymond for the murder of a bank teller who was his accomplice in a check counterfeiting scheme. This murder was so awful, it's almost not to be believed. And I'm, I'm not going to tell you this week about it, but I'm going to go into it in detail next week. Krantz was Burnett's longtime attorney, and he used his role as an officer of the court to assist in the murder of the bank teller. Burnett, Krantz, and the hitman, Stephen Brown, went on trial for this murder in 1996. I was 30. 
working for Jerry. And this federal trial was utter madness. One of the defendants punched his lawyer in the face in front of the jury. Another defendant faked a heart attack in order to end the trial day early. Bad evidence was coming in. One of the defense lawyers nearly caused a mistrial due to his doodling during the trial. I'm not shitting you. This all happened. And I kept notes for what occurred for some reason back then. And I've read my notes from the bail hearing for Howie Krantz. I hadn't looked at these notes in decades. But I'm glad I, I, I made them because I gave a blow-by-blow account of an incredible day in court of which I wrote the following contemporaneous note from 1995. Quote, for the next two weeks, I hear this line screamed from Jerry's office as he delights yet another excited listener with the best courtroom scene he claims that he's ever witnessed. That's what I'm going to describe in part next week. I was a young lawyer in 1996. As I said, I was 30 when the trial went down. The internet was not a big thing. So the trial, I suppose, didn't get the publicity globally that it should have. And I also had no idea how crazy the people sitting next to me were back then. I didn't know the full history of Michael Burnett, real name Michael Raymond, that's not even his real name. I didn't really know who he was when the trial was going on. I was just worrying about the trial. That's all I could worry about back then. I researched them over this weekend and it took me down a rabbit hole that I never knew existed. And the ending, the ending of this is, it's just too much. It's that incredible. Jeffrey Lickman for Beyond the Legal Limit. Thank you for listening today. I'm sorry to leave you on that cliffhanger, but join me next week. You can find me on Apple Podcasts, on iHeartRadio. You can find me on Spotify and write to me at beyondthelegallimit.com. And I'd love to get any feedback you have. I obviously want to talk about whatever you want to hear. But next week, you're going to hear the, hear the full story about Howie Krantz, Michael Burnett, and probably the craziest trial I've ever been involved in. Thanks for tuning in.